Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 17, where we left off last week in verse 16. Now, a number of you have expressed uh, that you're excited about this portion of Scripture and studying it this morning. It is, in fact, a very well-known portion of Scripture. Many times this portion of Scripture is used to sort of promote this concept of reaching the culture in a way where you sort of approach the culture on their level. And a lot of ministries, actually movements within the church, have been defined by this scripture. You've probably heard of it as the Arapagus or Mars Hill. In fact, there's a whole movement named Mars Hill. And many, many times you'll find that when people start to do things a little differently, they'll look for a scripture to sort of not justify it, but sort of define the movement of the Spirit. This morning, I want us to look at this scripture in a way that I think is maybe a little bit more consistent with the context and more true to form. I hope to point out to you this truth, that God's power is so much greater than man's wisdom. God's power is so much greater than man's wisdom. In this day and age, within the church, it is so tempting. Trust me, after a couple of decades of ministry, I can tell you it is extremely tempting to rely on the trappings within ministry. It's, it's very in vogue, if you will, to, to, to sort of adopt a more culturally relevant way of sharing the gospel. In fact, that seems to be the approach that we've seen embraced within the last 20 years in the church. They define the culture as postmodern and then say, well, now the church has to change the message in order to reach the culture. This morning, we're going to see that the message never changes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus says, my word will never pass away. It is true that we can approach things differently. And we need to. We've talked about that. As Paul has gone from city to city, he's dealt with different people. He's had to look at things differently. That's true. But the message and, the, and relying on God's power to reach people's hearts will never, ever change. And with that, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we now come to you in your word. And I ask that you would just help me this morning to properly communicate as you communicate through me your heart regarding ministry and reaching people with the truth and how we should approach things and and how we should just love people into the kingdom of God. But Lord, may we always rely on your power and your strength, your wisdom, and never on our own. May the things that, that... we read in, in, in the latest magazines and, the late, and we hear at the latest pastor's conferences be interesting perhaps, but may we always go back to your word and rely on your spirit's leading for us in our lives and through our ministries. We look to you in your word now and pray that you would just encourage us. According to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now Paul is going to preach the gospel in Achaia. Achaia is southern Greece. Paul had sailed from Berea, where we saw him last week, in Macedonia, which is northern Greece, to Athens in Achaia, and Paul proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue and in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace was the place where people gathered in that culture. The Jews oftentimes would gather in the synagogue. 
for fellowship and to worship. But the rest of the culture, the Greek culture, gathered in the marketplace. Now, as we look at this, I want you to think about the marketplace as sort of an in-person social media. Because we think of the marketplace today in that way. The, the marketplace today is very much online. We, we live in a very eccentric society. So our opinions are voiced online, unfortunately. Our, our commerce takes place online. Our discussions, our, our livelihood, our lives, they all seem to take place in this cyber world that we call a marketplace or social media. So in that sense, there's a direct application. What takes place in the marketplace at that time takes place in our society today online or within the media. So I think we see that it's different today than, than gathering at a, at a local uh, place or local restaurant or a local grange hall as, the, as they did in the early times uh, during the revolution or during the times of the founding of this country. People don't get together like that to discuss these things because they do that at home, on their computers, on their tablets, on their phones. But the principle is the same. There's a marketplace out there of ideas and concepts and people. And then there's the church, or in this case, it was the synagogue, where people gathered for worship. So we're going to look at Paul reaching the culture in these ways and just understand that we do look for opportunities within our culture where people have gathered to reach them with the truth. And that's the point. But let's start by looking at verses 16 through 18 as we get started here. We learn that while Paul was waiting for them, and he's actually waiting for Silas and Timothy who stayed in Berea. That's mentioned in verse 15. But while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news, amen, the gospel about Jesus, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news and the resurrection. You can't separate those two, by the way. There is no good news or gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can I hear an amen? If your gospel doesn't include that truth, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins... His being raised from the dead three days later and his promise to come again to judge the living and the dead. If it doesn't include that, it's not the gospel, pure and simple. But as we look at this, we realize he's proclaiming the the word of God in the Jewish synagogue and in the marketplace. And the reason I define marketplace is so that you guys can sort of apply this to your own lives. Now, Paul was waiting for these men, Silas and Timothy, to join him in Athens in Achaia. Now, I find this interesting. The word Athens in Greek means uncertainty uncertainty. Now, the reason I say that is because the world is so uncertain about things. They don't seem to know anything about anything, whether it's the latest pandemic news or what's going on in Washington or what's going on in the world or in the media. The world is, and and, and I can, in the nicest terms, describe it with that word, Athens, uncertain. Uncertain. You won't get any certainty within our culture today apart from the word of God. You'll get opinions, you'll get various thoughts, philosophies. What you won't get is the truth. So what makes me very frustrated within the church is that today you're hearing a lot of sermons and and, and pastors teaching very uncertain things. 
Now, why is that? Well, they've adopted the culture of the world. And the world is uncertain. So now, as we look at this, realize Athens. Everyone has heard of Athens. I'm sure it's a famous city. It's about three miles from the coast in the central plain of what was called Attica, and which is the capital. Uh, Athens was the capital of that area called Attica. It was the chief seat of learning and civilization during the golden age of Greece, and so we are all familiar with it. In fact, if you were to travel to Greece, you would most certainly visit Athens. It was believed to have been founded by Athena, the goddess of wisdom herself. Why is that important? Because wisdom is what the world is looking for, and yet when they receive it from God's word, they reject it. And when you reject the truth of God's word, you almost always embrace something less than the wisdom of God, right? You embrace the wisdom of man. And there is a great danger in that. So Achaia was the Roman province, and it embraced all of Greece or southern Greece. Uh, and, and the brothers in Berea had escorted Paul to this place in Athens for his own safety. Things had started to get a little tough. They were chased out of Thessalonica, and they were about to be chased out of Berea, and so they moved Paul out of the area until the passions of the people which were inflamed would calm down a little bit. And Silas and Timothy had stayed in Berea specifically to minister to the newly formed fellowship and the church that they had planted there. Now, Paul was greatly distressed. What distressed Paul? Was it, was it the immorality as much as, as anything else? Yes, perhaps. But what it was was that people in Athens had replaced God with something else, the idols. He was distressed that the city was full of idols. Later, Paul would write something along the lines of, greed is also idolatry. Actually, I, I believe he might have already written it at this point. Greed is also idolatry. I'm going to suggest to you, especially around this time of year, that if you desire anything that much, that it sort of motivates you or forces you to buy it, own it, think about it, that maybe you want to be a little bit careful about those types of things because greed is idolatry. I'll give you a little example. When I was, back in the 80s, they called us yuppies, young urban professionals. Most, most of the young, you know that? No, that's good. I'm surprised you do. The yuppies. And, and, and the key to being a, a really good yuppie was you had to have a yellow tie. And you had to drive either a Saab 900 or a BMW 3 Series. And I didn't like the Saab, so I had a picture of the BMW 3 Series in my room. And this is before I was a Christian. And I looked at it. I liked it in maroon. And I, I went to the dealership. I looked at it. It was kind of not in my price range, but I was all prepared to move in that direction. Figured once I got that, then I was going to buy a condo. And that would have been set. A yuppie for sure. But between the time I was able to purchase those things, the Lord called me to himself and into ministry. And I realized how foolish and, and, and ridiculous it was to, to lust after, to desire things to define me. I mean, listen, if you're hungry, you eat. If you need clothing, you purchase those clothing items. You, you do that. But sometimes we can define ourselves by our purchases. We can look at our lives and say, 
I am this person because of the home that I live in or the car that I drive or the job that I have or the school I attended or, the, or, or anything that we purchase or do on our own. If we allow that to define us, then we're in danger of sort of an idolatrous spirit. You understand? Because you're putting those things in the place of who you are in Christ. And that was the problem. This place was full of idols. Now, he, of course, meant temples, little temples where they worshipped different gods. But the Greeks and the Romans worshipped gods because they wanted something. So if you wanted wisdom, you would worship the god of wisdom. If, if you were a warrior, you'd worship the god of war. And if you wanted love, you'd usually worship the goddess of love. Whatever you were looking for, whatever you desired, you would go after the god that would give it to you. And it's important to see that that's what drove the devotion of people toward these pantheon of gods. It was what they wanted. So do you see why Paul said greed is also idolatry? So I don't want you to think of idols in the sense that, oh, people worship these gods out of fear. Maybe sometimes they did, but generally the reason someone was devoted to Aphrodite was because they had a problem with lust. The reason someone worshipped Ares was because they were a person that liked to battle and, and fight and conquer. So if you understand that, now you understand the idols were really just a reflection of the hearts of the people. They were caught up in wanting things, desiring things, and that materialism, that lust, that covetousness defined them as a people. And Paul was greatly distressed by it. So he addressed the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue in Athens, and he, he and his team had been called by God, as we know, to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. Now, they were north. He's now in Achaia. Silas and Timothy are still in Macedonia while well, he's in Athens, but he may not, I don't know, I can't say for sure, he may not have been called to even go to Athens. He went there not because the Spirit led him. He went there because the escorts who took him out of Macedonia were concerned for his safety, so they placed him in this city of Athens where he could lay low. Now, the reason I say that is because anywhere God led Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas or any of the others, you saw God's Spirit move in a mighty way. You're not going to see that here in Athens. It doesn't happen. And that's important to note. So he seems to have been motivated in this particular moment by the state of the culture, not necessarily by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying the Spirit didn't lead him. I'm saying what motivated him, we're told, is that he was distressed about the culture. The distress that he experienced after observing the culture motivated him to try to reach the culture. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. When you see people who are suffering, when you see people who are gripped by fear because the news tells them to be afraid, when you see people worked up over some issue that the, the, the mainstream media has manufactured, you look at them and you think to yourself, my heart breaks, I'm distressed for them. When you see someone caught up in materialism or lust or addiction, listen, listen, we're distressed. But I'm going to say something that may not rub you the right way. Never, ever be motivated by compassion. Or distress. We're led by the Spirit. If you allow yourself in ministry to be motivated by your distress and your concern over the culture, you're going to burn out, I promise you. 
And I, and I tell you this, if you allow yourself to be motivated simply and only by compassion, there's no end to expiring energy to try to reach people's needs. There will never come a point where you say, oh, I feel so great about what I was able to accomplish. You're always going to be operating from a deficit. Now, do we operate in compassion? Yes, according to the Spirit's leading. Do we allow the distress of the culture to direct us? Yes, as the Lord leads us. And that's usually what happens in terms of a ministry getting off track. They see the distress of the culture, they have compassion for people, and they allow those emotions and those feelings to guide them, and they assume... And I'm not going to repeat it, but I remember on The Odd Couple what Tony Randall told us, you guys are a little bit older, about what happens when you assume. You assume that God is leading. And you don't want to do that. Now, I'm not going to speak for Paul. I can tell you in my own life, many times I've allowed myself to be motivated by these things, the distress about the culture, the, the situation that we find ourselves in, or my compassion for people, and it almost always leads to compassion fatigue, being burned out. And Jesus said, my, my burden isn't heavy, it's light. My yoke is easy. Let's continue. I like the fact that Paul took advantage of every opportunity, and I think we should, actually. In this particular case, Paul was definitely looking for opportunity to reach, reach his culture. He was. And, and not in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. But he first tried to reach his brothers, the Jews, which I think was his custom. He always did that. And the God-fearing Greeks that were in Athens, they would be Greeks that came to the synagogue. And there were many. They they had seen this in the other cultures. But let's remember in Macedonia, they were clearly by a vision called to be there. Not necessarily the case in Athens. Well, Paul also addressed anyone that happened to be in the marketplace. And there's something to be said for this. Any opportunity you have in the marketplace, at your workplace, at your school, in life, you have an opportunity to share the gospel, definitely share the gospel. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But just understand that that doesn't guarantee that God is going to work just because you share your faith. I think we all know that. What I've seen in the past is you can, unfortunately, you can sometimes put someone off by sharing your faith in a way that maybe God hasn't led you. You know, I'm very prayerful about who I invite to church and when I invite them. I look for God's open door. Of course I want them to come to church. Of course I want to spend 10 minutes sharing the gospel with them. But if my timing and my delivery and my sensitivity aren't right, I can actually do more harm than good if I'm not careful and I'm not prayerful and I'm not led of the Spirit. Now, what I'm not saying is that you should not share the gospel. What I am saying is that you should share the gospel as led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Okay? So please let me be clear. I'm all about evangelism and missions. But if you're not led of the Spirit, what good is it? It's the wisdom of man, not the power of God. Okay. Now, I'm going to take a few moments to explain this to you because you're all intelligent people. And I think you need to understand the kind of philosophies that Paul was up against. There were four great systems of philosophy that flourished in Athens at this time. There's Platonic philosophy. It was developed by Plato of 427 to 347 BC. This may be a little confusing, but he taught that the substantive reality around us is only a reflection of a higher truth. 
So very much the idea is what you see around us only reflects a higher truth. We can agree with a lot of what Plato said, because that's kind of true. We have the material world, but we know the spiritual world is greater. So in that sense, Platonic philosophy is similar, but that's pretty much where it ends. Then you had peripatetic philosophy, which was what was taught by Aristotle, which I'm sure you're familiar with. We'll talk more about him today. He was actually the tutor of Alexander the Great who we've talked a lot about over the last few weeks because he was featured so prominently in the stories and the histories of especially northern Greece, but also southern Greece and the Greek empire. He taught, and this is kind of interesting, he taught the direct observation of nature and that theory must follow fact. So this idea that what you see is what you get. (laughs) What you see in life, that's what you learn from. So the direct observation of nature, theory must follow fact. It isn't enough to just believe something, but you need to be able to prove it. I think we can agree with that as well. I know logic is dead in our culture today because people say, but I feel. You know, there used to be a time when you were arguing ideas that if you couldn't substantiate your argument with logic, you were ignored. Now all you have to say is, I feel. I identify as a horse. Nay. I identify as a horse. So you have to address me as a horse. Of course. So here's what we know. We know that people today can say anything, believe anything, and as long as they feel it, it's true. Now, according to Aristotle, you had to be able to prove what you said with logic. I like that. So far, I can agree with a little of this, not all of it, but some of it. And I like the idea that, you know, you can say that you, 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 you identify as a certain person or gender or whatever. But if you can't prove to me biologically that what you say is true, I reject what you're saying as just your thoughts, your theory, but there's no fact. And we would probably, dis- we would probably dismiss most of what the culture says today just by following this philosophy. Okay, then we have Epicurean philosophy. This is the third of the, of the four. And it was developed by Epicurus. By the way, Aristotle taught his theories around 384 to 382 BC. But here's what we do know. This philosophy, this Epicurean philosophy was mentioned directly here in the scripture, which is why I'm going through this, this, uh, this labor of explaining it to you. In 342 to 271 BC, this Epicurean philosophy was developed. And it was developed by Epicurus. He taught that the chief purpose of man is to experience pleasure. Today we would call this hedonism. To experience pleasure. Oh, there aren't a lot of people out there that believe this, right? That was sarcasm. Today we do what feels good. And we simply say, well, I do it because it feels good. doesn't matter what God says, I don't care. This brings me pleasure. This makes me happy. I buy something. I'm with someone I experience the pleasure that that I desire. And you know, you would be an Epicurean because you're all about feeding your flesh. He taught, Epicurus taught, that pleasure could only be found in living a simple life. Now that's interesting because that's not what you would expect, right? You would expect that, well, pleasure, you know, more things in my life. No, actually Epicurus started by saying, you live a simple life, you're going to be happy. You know, that I agree with. 
The, the simpler your life is today, the happier you will be. The book of Ecclesiastes, the book, book of Proverbs tells us, you know, the more you have, the more you're going to worry. Have you figured that out? I always use this, this example. You buy a big house, now you have to heat it, you have to cool it, you have to pay maintenance on it, you have to pay taxes on it. You buy an expensive car, now you've got to park in the, at the end of the parking lot at Home Depot. You get a little bit more exercise, which is good, but now you're worried in the middle of the night. You know, you open up, maybe this is just me, you open up the, uh, the shade to see if any leaves are on, on your car. I always go through that for about a year with a new car. It doesn't matter how expensive the car is. And then it finally happens. The blessed ding. Ah, it's over. My car is not perfect anymore. And then you're like, ooh, it's over. My car is not perfect anymore. Now I can go back to living my life and not worrying about my car. We become so infatuated with the things of the world, don't we? Well, Epicurus understood that. And if you're going to experience pleasure, he thought you must keep it simple. Now, you know that didn't stay that way, right? As I said, this philosophy was developed over, uh, over a long period of time, a little less than 100 years, but it was, it was developed over time. Now, there was a man, I think you'll find this interesting, who named Diogenes. He was an Epicurean whose only possession was a tub to sit in. That's all he needed in life. My first question is, did he wear anything in the tub? Because I don't know if I want to picture this in my mind. But Alexander the Great was deeply impressed with this man, Diogenes, and there were these philosophers with these crazy ideas. So you know what he had the nerve to tell Alexander? He said, Alexander, you need, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to carry two fish around for two weeks. Now just imagine that. I mean, have you ever, like, cooked fish in your kitchen and the next day you get up and you didn't clean the pan? Doesn't smell so good. What is he trying to teach Alexander, I'm not sure exactly, but I'll tell you what, something smells fishy to me. So that didn't go over well. By 53 AD, this way of thinking, this Epicurean philosophy had degraded into the pursuit of pleasure and sensuality above all else. So, so much for keeping it simple. And that always happens. It could be experienced, that his pleasure could only be experienced through orgies, feasts, And you ready for this? This thing they called regurgitation. The idea is this. You eat as much as you can, vomit, and eat more. The idea was to experience the pleasure of of eating and drinking. And so when you reached a place where you were full, you just purged and started again. That'll give you a good idea where these people's minds were at. And of course, this resulted in pantheism or the worship of material things. So, so much for Epicurean philosophy. And then you had the Stoics. Stoic philosophy, and the Stoics are mentioned here as well. It was developed by a man named Zeno in 344 to 262 BC, roughly the same time. He taught that the chief purpose of man is to be virtuous. And, of course, we could agree with that as well. That's the thing. There's truth in philosophy. The, The problem is when you say, oh, philosophy, it's all. No, no. Philosophy is simply a way of thinking. And many times these philosophies have truth. It's what they do with it. It's what they do with it. And is it God's truth or is it man's truth? So here's what happened. He taught that virtue could only be experienced if emotions uh, were not suppressed. So the idea is this. You you know, if if you want to experience a, a pleasure, you have to get control of your emotions. You have to limit. Think of Mr. Spock as being stoic. So you, you don't express your emotions. 
and you'll be happy. Interesting. Now, they included the uh, Socratic ideals of virtue, endurance, self-sufficiency, all good things, but the goal was to find happiness in not expressing emotions. And he added something of the logic of Aristotle, but it later degraded into atheism, which it always does. The rejection of spiritual things. See, God gave us emotions for a reason. Our passions, our zeal. They connect with our spirits. And when we deny our emotions and our feelings, we oftentimes become very unspiritual people. And that's what happened there. So now I've given you more Greek philosophy than you wanted or needed. But now you understand what Paul was dealing with, right? That's, that's the point. I'm giving you this background so you can understand Paul's walking into this situation in the marketplace. And these are the kinds of people that are there. This is what they believe. This is the culture of the day. And we have a lot of different ways of thinking today as well. But Paul got into a dispute with a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the marketplace, not surprisingly. Some of them didn't understand what he was talking about. Others thought that he was promoting the worship of foreign gods. But he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Amen? Okay. Now I'm going to read the narrative because it kind of says it all. And then we'll make a few comments and then we'll be finished this morning. Here's the thing. Paul's invited by the Epicureans and the Stoics to a meeting of the Areopagus, or a meeting at Mars Hill. Let's read what happened there. In verses 19 through 33, then, these are the men he was sort of arguing with or disputing with, then they took him, that is Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Then we read in parentheses, Luke writes, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, to me, that just sounds like social media. Then Paul stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. Now, what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man... He made every nation of men and, and, they should, and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then he begins to quote some of these philosophers. He writes, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Before we get to their reaction in verse 32, let's just stop a moment and look at what Paul did. This is so important because I hear much of this idea of 
reaching the culture and sort of approaching things within church in a way that the culture is going to respond. Seeker-friendly, the emergent movement, this idea that the church has to change to reach the culture. Now, the first thing I would submit to you is, I don't know that Paul necessarily changed his message. He may have incorporated some of the ways of thinking at that time, which I've already shared with you in those four major philosophies. He may have approached it in a way that they could receive it, but at no point did he eliminate repentance, or did, did I miss that? Did you, did you miss that? Or Repentance was in there, right? And he also talked about the resurrection. Is this correct? He talked about ignorance. He, he talked about this concept of sin, that men need to repent. The message of the gospel is exactly what he spoke. He just did it in a way that was a little bit more eloquent and maybe a little bit more focused on the recipient. And you might think, well, that's what we need to do. Not so fast. Let's see how this thing worked out before we make that judgment. First, I want to say this. The Aeropagus was up on the hill from the marketplace, and it was within the site of the Parthenon. So if you're familiar with these ruins today, they were beautiful at that time. Uh, this was where the various philosophies were presented and discussed, and it contained a, a place called the Stone of Impudence, which was the place of philosophical debate. This was the place where everyone debated their ideas. You might think of it as cable network news, where everyone sits around a table and discusses what they think the truth is. And every once in a while, you'll have a Christian on there who tells you the truth, but for the most part, a lot of ideas, not very much substance whatsoever. And that's, I'm sure, what was happening here. The interesting thing for me is that Paul was asked to present to them this teaching that he had taught in the marketplace. So he had been teaching in the marketplace. They didn't understand it. They invite him to the Arapagos or Mars Hill, and he preaches the same message. So he hasn't changed his message at all. But they wanted to understand his teaching. It was strange and new to them. It was a shiny object. It was something they hadn't heard before. And the Athenians were notorious for spending all their time discussing the latest ideas and philosophies. It's what they did. Now, Demosthenes rebuked his fellow Athenians for their obsession with novelty, a word which means things that are new and shiny. In fact, he said that they were constantly asking one another in the marketplace, what news? What news? What news? News, news, news. When I saw this, I realized, whoo, no wonder the mainstream media has such a grip on our culture. We walk around within our culture like Athenians that Demosthenes, I knew I was going to mess that up, um, tried to, to, to point out. The idea is this, news, what news, 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 printed news, online news, cable network news. Mainstream news, right news, left news. If you stop for a minute and you really think it through, what would happen tomorrow if we stopped watching the news? Very interesting. Well, I could go on all day about that. But here's what I know. They said what news. They were obsessed with news. And they were clearly more interested in Paul's philosophy than the truth of Jesus Christ. See, that's what happens, unfortunately. Well, to Paul's credit, he tried his best to relate to the ignorant and idolatrous Athenian philosophers. Tried his best. He really did. 
He used their love of idolatry and their objects of worship to teach them about God. But I'll remind you, their hearts hadn't changed. Carnal people cannot receive the truth of Scripture. God has to open their hearts. We, look, we saw this when uh, Paul was speaking to Lydia in Philippi. God opened her heart. God doesn't open their heart. No matter how well you voice the gospel or share it, it's not going to make a dent. I'm sure you experienced some of that over Thanksgiving with your families. When you shared for the ninth time with Uncle Sal the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they just look at you like, pass the stuffing. Anyway, he acknowledged that as a culture, they were very religious. That means they had a lot of religion in their culture, not a lot of relationship with God. In fact, Athenians were remarkable for their zeal in the worship of the gods. But I've already explained to you what that means. It's not true devotion. It isn't. It's materialism or lust. It's the sin nature. They celebrate the sin nature and their desires through their worship of things. So when Paul said they're religious, it's not sarcasm. He's just trying to, to kind of get the hold of them, to, to share that with them the truth of what a true religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ is. But let's face it, their religion was just a religion of ideas and desires. It really wasn't a religion at all. It was lust, materialism. In fact, it was said that it was easier to find a god at Athens than a man. That's how many gods they had because there's many, many different desires. He found an altar while he was walking around the city that was inscribed to an unknown god. And some have presented this as, well, they just, you know, just in case they missed one. No, to the, to the unknown god was a way of thinking uh, within Greek philosophy. And I'll explain it in a minute. But he used this concept of the unknown god to tell them about the god that they clearly did not know. Now, when they built that temple or that altar, it, it had a different purpose. But he just, he's just trying to get their attention. I saw a temple that said to the unknown God, I'm sure they looked at each other like, yeah, we know what you're talking about. So you admit that there's a God out there you don't know? I want to tell you about him. And that's a great open door. It really is. It's actually quite clever. He used that concept to tell them about the God that they clearly did not know. Now, Paul was well-versed in the various Greek philosophies of the time. He, he grew up in a Greek city. He's a Roman citizen. Yes, he's a rabbi. Yes, he's an ex-Pharisee. Yes, But he was trained and educated in a Greek system. Now, some of you have children that are learning in a classical education style. It's very different than the modern way of thinking. Classical education was used in boarding schools, still is, and in some private schools, and in some homeschool programs. And the idea is that you educate your children in the classics, or or the idea of, 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 you know, even Greek and Roman thought or poetry, things of that nature that really, truly help us to to reason and to be able to think. And when you teach your child, imagine this, to think, there's no end to their learning. If you indoctrinate your your children, not only aren't they learning, they no longer know how to think. They know how to feel, but they forget how to think or they never really learn how to think. So I'm a big fan of that. But having said that, in this sort of classical education style, Paul was able to speak to these people. He understood them. And he attempted to reach them on a philosophical and intellectual level. He did. Now, this idea of the unknown God, let me explain. Aristotle had a philosophy that was described in this way. The unmoved mover. The unmoved mover. It was sort of this concept of God. He was unknown, but he's responsible for what's happening in the world. He identified this unmoved mover as as God. And the unmoved mover caused all the motion and activity in the universe. We might call him the Big Bang today. 
And each movement must have a cause that can be traced back to a single source. Them being very scientific, they believe, well, somebody got this thing going. So the unmoved mover is the one that did. But they believe that he activated the world by a process of attraction and that all beings are drawn to itself. But all of that philosophy is bogus. But this much they did believe. There was a God out there they couldn't know. And Paul took that concept. They also believed that wisdom was the highest of all human virtues. It was expressed in the contemplation of philosophical truth. And so they were obsessed with man's wisdom. And in fact, contemplation, you've heard that word before. Contemplation, they believe that contemplation makes us divine because we're imitating the activity of God himself, since all God does is really contemplate. He's not really involved. He's out there somewhere maybe contemplating, thinking. And so when you do that, that's emulating or, or, or imitating God. Okay, so now you understand the concept. The unmoved mover had not created the world. He just kind of got things started. Therefore, he, create, he remained quite indifferent to the existence of the universe. He's this God of science that some scientists believe exists, deists, if you will. There's a God out there that God had started, uh, that, that, God, uh, uh, that, that started the universe, that God had all started. But you can't know him. You can't have a relationship with him. And so there you have the unknown God. This is what Paul is tapping into. He certainly doesn't direct or guide the world. God's out there. I believe there's a God, but he doesn't make any difference in our lives. That's what one of these philosophers might say. So what does Paul do? He taught them all about the God that was clearly unknown to them. And you know what's interesting is they wanted to hear the philosophy, but it seems pretty clear the majority of them weren't really interested in knowing God. By the way, he tells them that he's the creator of heaven and earth, our God. He doesn't live in man-made temples. He argued against their uncertainty with the certainty of a personal creator. This is the kind of thing you need to stress when you share the gospel. He revealed that God transcends temples and other objects of worship. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ and with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul told them that. He doesn't need men to serve him. He created men. He sustains men, men and women. And he created the first man from whom all the nations of the earth descended. These are important principles. But notice, I'm listing them, listing them so you can understand. Look at the gospel that Paul preached. It was very strong in the idea of creationism. It was logical. He used the culture to introduce the truth. But the culture didn't change the truth. It didn't impact the truth. It only opened the door for him to share the truth. But the truth itself never changed. It still included all the true basics, fundamentals of Christianity. And that's where many of these movements today fail. Because they use the culture and and man's wisdom. But when it comes down to actually sharing the message, they water it down or edit it out or make it so woke that it's broke. Well, God determined when and where all the nations of the earth should be, and his purpose was this, that men might seek to have a relationship with him, the very opposite of what these Greeks believed about the unmoved mover. He is not far from every person living throughout the whole earth. God is right here, right now. You can have a relationship with him through the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. If God opens your heart, you cry out to God, 
You believe the truth of his death on the cross for your sins. You repent of those sins. And you ask the God who rose from the dead to fill your life with the Holy Spirit and make you his own as you claim him as Lord and Savior. And in so doing, you are, as we say, saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Now, I love the fact that the message was not hindered by the culture. Not at all. He used their own poets to, and there's nothing wrong with this, using their own poets to support the truth of what he taught them about God. Now, remember, he's within the site of the Parthenon, the Theseum, the Temple of Juno, the Acropolis. He's in this center of Greek thought. So what does he do? He shows them that he's familiar with Hellenistic or Greek culture, hoping that this will help him to build a bridge and a connection with the people. He quoted Epimenides of Gnosis in Crete, who argued for the immortality of Zeus when he said these words, for him, in him, we live and move and have our being. That was this individual Epimenides. And then he quoted a verse taken from an invocation to Zeus by Aratus, a minor Cilician poet, when he said this, we are his offspring. And as he quotes these sources, he then begins to take that and, and, and go off from there and, and deliver the truth, as we've already seen. Now, that's all a very good way to approach things. It's not bad. Let's see if it was effective. That, that's the point we're going to end with today. Let's see if it worked. I, I guess, you know, the proof of, of the eating is, uh, proof of the pudding is in the eating, they say. We often shorten that to the proof is in the pudding. If it's good, it's good. If you slice the turkey and you eat the turkey and it's not very good, well, it's not very good. So, Paul challenged the ignorant and idolatrous Athenian philosophers. He did challenge them. He argued that they needed to change the way that they thought about God. He, he challenged them. I mean, we're God's offspring, and he's quoting from their own poets. We live and move as living human beings, and God's offspring or creation should not think of God as a man-made image of metal or stone. Think about it. If we're God's offspring and God is some stone object or something made of gold or silver, how does that make any sense? I guess that's the point he's making. God must be greater than his creation, right? Certainly. And he made that point. And then he calls them to turn away, to repent, to turn away from the ignorance. God was commanding them to repent. If the word repent isn't in your gospel presentation, it's probably not a gospel presentation. You can replace it with change what the word means, to change your mind. But if there's no change, change is the hallmark of a relationship with God. You understand you need to change. You need to repent. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus also preached that message to repent. His apostles, all of the apostles, Paul as well. And yet today, you'd think that that word was, well, on that list. You know, that list of words you can't use anymore. There are words on that list. They are on that list because they sound like words that are on the list. Did you know that? I'm not even going to give you examples because I'll just get myself in trouble. But it's amazing. You can't use that word anymore. Really? You can't use that word anymore? I thought that was the word. No, you can't use that word anymore. Well, I'm going to stop right there because someone will be offended and then I'll distract from the message. So repent is definitely an important word to use when sharing the gospel. Now, God had overlooked the ignorant philosophies of the nations in the past. <clears throat> But now they had their chance. He's now calling them, and all of us, to abandon philosophies. Philosophies that would take you away from the truth of God's word. Or supplant them or replace them. He warned them that God is going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. Amen? It's going to happen. Maybe sooner than we think. 
For you see, he has set a day and appointed a man, Jesus Christ, to bring his judgment on mankind. He has proved this to all mankind by doing one singular thing, raising his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. That proves that everything Jesus said and promised is true and will come to pass. Amen? That's why the resurrection is essential to sharing the gospel. Well, let's see how it worked out. Because it might surprise you where this goes. You would think, right? Given all that I've just shared, that, that it should have been like Billy Graham, the, the original Billy Graham. Right? It, should, it should have had an impact on the culture. I mean, Athens should have been turned right side up. Everything should have changed. I mean, they went to other cities where they were hated and despised, and we heard that great numbers of people came to faith. Paul's in Athens, and he takes a completely different approach, a more culturally relevant approach, approach a, a, a way where he's sort of looking at the culture and applying the culture of the day and being very careful about the way he said, not politically correct, but the idea of being culturally relevant. Certainly he was culturally relevant. How did it work out? Verse 32. When they heard, excuse me, about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. <clears throat> a few men became <clears throat> excuse me a few men became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysius a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris and a number of others pretty unimpressive by standards that we would compare it to on the first and second missionary journeys Certainly, this is the first time we've seen a situation where Paul has shared the gospel so eloquently, but it's also a time where we see that it didn't really have the impact that you would have thought it would have had. Why is that? Well, I suppose you could sit and analyze this for days. I've already shared with you how Paul approached it. He didn't change the message. How he approached it, though, was different than he had in other places. He was certainly relying on reaching them with the wisdom of man. Not that the message was the wisdom of man, but his approach, it sort of encapsulated, incorporated the wisdom of man. He approached it in a way where he tried to reach them where they were at. And you look at that and you think, that makes sense. But the problem is, the results speak differently. These men rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Some of them sneered and immediately rejected it. And several philosophical schools believed in the immortality of the soul, but to the Greeks, this idea of a bodily resurrection was completely ludicrous. He lost them the minute he suggested that Jesus rose from the dead. He lost them. Now, Paul left as he realized that they were not really interested in the truth of Jesus Christ. If you're not interested in the resurrection, you're not interested in the gospel. So for all of that, what were the results? Look at verse 34 again. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Uh, You're you're naming two of the few people that actually came to faith. And and we're happy. I'm happy for them. That's wonderful. But just understand, it doesn't seem to be the most effective way to preach the gospel. In my opinion, my humble opinion, I would say the results are lackluster. That's all I'm saying. A few men followed Paul, they believed, including this one man from the Areopagus. And of course, the Lord will will do what he needs to do to reach even one, and I get that. But I don't know that I would base an entire school of ministry on this approach. 
and yet we see many doing that today. Whole methodologies are built upon this idea of being culturally relevant, and yet I would suggest that maybe cultural relevance isn't effective. You look at the world today, how much difference has that style of ministry made in our world? And how about the churches that have embraced that? What's the state of their hearts and their devotion to God? COVID came around and most of them closed their doors. A number of women also followed Paul and believed, including one woman, Damaris. But Paul's skillful and eloquent oratory was rejected by the majority of these learned philosophers. So, so much for that. As we used to say back in the 70s, big whoop. I used to say that as a kid. Big whoop. This rejection caused him to completely reject the wisdom of men in preaching the gospel. You may not know that. He later changed his approach when sharing the gospel to the Corinthians, just a few miles south of Athens. Because, you see, the failure of man's wisdom in Athens is what prompted him to write these words. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, but then I just want to read this scripture as we close our service. Because I want you to see what Paul learned. The best way I can share with you what happened is to read what Paul learned from the experience. For the message, and we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, now he's speaking to the Corinthians after having been in Athens. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen? Lord, Heavenly Father, help us to keep it simple. Paul learned maybe the hard way. 
that for all of his brilliance and intelligence and cultural relevance, it really didn't make the difference. But that what made a difference was this. The truth of the gospel preached as it appears foolish to the world. And that you open up hearts. And what an impact he had in Corinth. Another city that loved philosophy. When he went there, things changed. Spent 18 months there. Lord God, may we see that you've called us, yes, to reach our culture, to be aware of our culture, but not to embrace our culture in the way we think. Or to think that the things in this world can somehow assist us in preaching the truth of the gospel. You've used the foolishness of preaching for 2,000 years, and I don't suspect you have any desire to change that. May we preach the gospel the truth of Jesus Christ as it is presented in your word with sensitivity to the culture but in a way where it powerfully impacts those that hear it that they might open their hearts not to our eloquence or our superior wisdom or philosophy but to the truth of your power to change lives we ask these things in Jesus precious name Amen